Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The second reading is Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer before we uh, we turn back to that text and others. Father, thank you for the, the clarity of your word. Thank you that you said to your people through the prophet Micah, I have saved you, I have brought you into a relationship with me. Now what do I require from you? It is indeed to act justly, to love mercy, walk humbly before you. So we pray that uh, hearing your word tonight would understand more about entering a relationship with you. And for those of us who know you already, would, we would do those things, that your spirit would persuade us, convince us, change us, so that we walk humbly before you. This week and onwards we pray. Amen. Okay, um, if you're joining us tonight, if you're visiting, you're very welcome indeed. Lovely to have you with us. 
Last week we started uh, a short topical series, just three, we often do this, normally actually in January, break our normal habit of uh, working our way through a book of the scriptures to um, try and systematize, to sort of draw the, the Bible's teaching together on a, a particular topic, and uh, in January then for three weeks we're thinking a little bit about pursuing justice, the topic of uh, how should we view social justice, how should Christians be concerned uh, for uh, the world around them, uh, and particularly the marginalized in society, what should our uh, concern be? And um, we started that last week. We'll spend um, uh, just a couple of, uh, sorry, tonight and uh, one more week thinking about that. And if you hear last week, we saw really the main point was that God has a heart or a concern for the marginalized. So we saw repeatedly the refrain, he cares for the fatherless, for the widow, the alien. We might change the terms a little bit today. We might say the orphan, the single mum, the genuine asylum seeker. God cares for these people very much. It's a repeated bang, bang, bang of the scriptures. And uh, again, we said that uh, because the marginalized of society are uh, more vulnerable to injustice than any other group, so the Lord calls upon us to look out for them. And broadly, there are two senses to that. There's a passive sense that the Bible would speak. Uh, if, for you and I, we are not to take advantage of the marginalized. That is, we're not to exploit them, not to swindle them. That's a passive sense in one sense. We're not to active, so no, I mustn't confuse terms, but we're not to be involved in taking advantage. It's a passive sense. It's quite easy to not take advantage of people as you go about life. But um, there's also a positive sense. If that's a passive, there's an active sense. The active sense of actually to get involved and act for the good of marginalized in society. Now, Christians would disagree on that one a little bit more. But there are some for whom, because they are voiceless, the church is called to speak up for them. So think of it this way. If you lived in a society, a community, where four-year-old children, four-year-old orphans, with no parents to protect them, four-year-old orphans are being sent into mines to dig out coal. Now, you could easily sit here and think, well, I'm not exploiting them. I'm not taking advantage of them. Good for you. That's great. But they need a bit more than that. They need a little bit more help. And I think biblically we should be concerned for those who are voiceless and vulnerable. The four-year-old miners, the orphans, that's William, sorry, uh, Lord Shaftesbury. We'll think about him a little bit later. So there's a a passive sense, don't exploit, but an active sense as well. Be concerned, speak up for uh, the marginalized. You have no voice. And uh, we looked at that a little bit last week. Uh, After last week, a few people asked, uh, what's good to read on on this sort of subject? Um, Well, there's a whole whole stack of books. The three probably I thought were most useful or most accessible. Um, Take your pick in one sense. But Kevin DeYoung's book, What is the Mission of the Church? Excellent. Um, uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, very helpful uh, indeed. For, for my money, the, the best on the topic is probably Tim Chester's book, Good News to the Poor, I thought was the, the most helpful, thorough, balanced uh, thing that I read. Um, and uh, we should have some of them on the bookstool next week. But anyway, any of those would be helpful in this arena. So last week then we thought about God's heart for justice. Next week we're going to think about some practicalities 
Um, so come with your questions, uh, email them in if you want. But in actually, we try and be uh, very practical indeed. How do you not just get overwhelmed by a topic such as this? But tonight I just want to consider one issue, really, one question, which is how do two things, how does proclamation of the gospel, how does evangelism go alongside social justice, being involved in a social action? How do you hold those two together? How do you conceive of their relative worth? Do you try, do you give up on one, go for the other? How do you go about that? Let me give you two caricatures as we begin to, once it's to focus the argument. Two characters. Uh, first is Tender Tom. Now, Tender Tom, uh, he reads through his Bible and he sees there's an enormous amount in the Bible about God's concern for the poor and the marginalized. And he reads through all that and thinks, well, that's what I must do with my life. So he gives his time over to social projects. His great motto in life is, I believe in life before death, not just life after death. He sometimes finds himself quoting those funny old words apparently said by Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I'm just going to go out and demonstrate to people how good God is. In truth, he finds when he actively goes out and feeds the homeless, people are also quite positive about him. And like his Christianity, when he tries to tell them that Jesus Christ died on a cross to save them from their sins, people are less positive. So he thinks, okay, well, just pragmatically as well, this is the way to go. People like Christianity when I talk about social action and those things. That's Tender Tom. Now, these caricatures. Uh, The other end of the spectrum is Blunt Beth. Blunt Beth is blunt and basically says, the only thing that matters is evangelism. That's the only thing that matters. And anything else you do in your life is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Because the boat's going down, everything's going to be destroyed. So what's the point in doing anything but telling people about how they can get into the next life? She's got a load of stickers, which she sticks on all her items, all her possessions, her stereo, her TV, soon to be burned, soon to be burned. You've just got to remember these things, soon to be burned, soon to be burned. And if you're not a Christian and you stand still long enough, soon to be burned, soon to be burned, soon to be burned. She's just, she's just rampant. She just, uh, she's blunt. The only thing that matters is evangelism. Now, Tender Tom and Blunt Beth, they don't get on so well. They tend to shout at one another without listening at all. Now, those are historical, sorry, those are caricatures. And yet, there'd be some truth to them, historically, as the church in the West, particularly the UK, um, most knowledgeable about, but I think it'd be fair of, of the U.S. as well. The church in the West broadly has, has swung between the two. So you could say it, the, the high point, people would often point back to historically, where Christians got this combination, evangelism and, and social action best, um, was in the evangelical awakening. So in the second half of the 18th century, there's great gospel preaching, um, George Whitfield, John Wesley, uh, driving things, Harold Thomas and, and many others preaching the gospel and thousands upon thousands of people in the UK become Christians, evangelical Christians. And then in, in the wake of that, people would say, historians, between 1800 and 1850, there is a brilliant combination of Christians, evangelical Christians, preaching the gospel and involved in passionate Uh, concern for social action, social justice. So the big names are the William Wilberforces, the the Seventh Lord Shaftesbury, Angela Burdett Coots, Elizabeth Fry, all thoroughly evangelical believers who are involved in uh, social projects. 
Now, they were both. I don't know if you've seen the film uh, Amazing Grace. Brilliant film in many, many ways, telling the story of uh, William Wilberforce as he battered and battered and battered to try and overturn and and, uh, get rid of the slave trade. It's a great film in many ways, apart from if you saw that film and knew nothing else of his life, you would just think he was a one-horse man. I've got that. Do I mean that? Anyway, he cared about one thing only, the slave trade. Or if you read anything of his life, the, the range of projects that he was involved in was enormous. And he was first and foremost an evangelist in many ways. The only book we have written by him is one trying to convince his fellow politicians and fellow members of society to become Christians, genuinely born-again believers. He's responsible for founding the Church Missionary Society. He drove that through with, uh, with a couple of his friends to, to send missionaries over the, over, the, over the world. So he's one example of a man who's committed to both. Shaftesbury would be the same. Took over, in one sense, um, a generation later, and the, the running of the Church Missionary Society ran and founded the Bible Society, sending Bibles all over the world. These are people, that's the generation that got it right. So, you know, one sense... We, say we want to do a good job of holding these two things together, but we're not the first generation to ever have a go at that. That sort of 1800, 1850, brilliant. Brilliant. You get a a little, why am I telling you this? I'll come to that. The, um, you get a, a generation slightly later, 1880 to 1930, something around about those times, you get the rise of liberalism within the church in the UK and US, but particularly the UK, when... Um, well, preaching the gospel doesn't seem to go so well. Not so many people are becoming Christians. And so there's a redefining of what mission is. Mission is no longer telling people the good news about Jesus Christ. He came from heaven to earth to die in our place so we can go to heaven. That gets sidelined. And much more the emphasis is upon projects, social projects. What can we do? And so... Uh, the, 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 the argument and the language becomes the kingdom of God spreads with every child that is educated, every disease that is eradicated, every well that is dark in Africa brings the kingdom of God because it's doing good. And there's a redefinition between 1880-1930. Now, as a consequence of that, lots of evangelicals want nothing to do with these sort of projects at all. That you've sold out on the gospel. You're not preaching Jesus Christ anymore. And so evangelicals wanted nothing to do with that and became completely hostile to any form of social justice. And really, you have to say, it's probably only in about the late 1960s, early 1970s, that uh, evangelicals sort of wake up to what's gone on. Seminal date, 1974, Billy Graham gathers the good and the great of the evangelical world in Lausanne for the uh, World Congress on Evangelization. And uh, they talk about what are they going to do? What are we going to do to reach the world with the gospel? And a whole number of things are discussed. But amidst it, they produce uh, this statement on the relative value of uh, preaching the gospel and social justice. It's Article 5 of the 1974 Congress. Although reconciliation with other people is not reconciliation with God, nor is social action evangelism, nor is political liberation salvation, nevertheless, we affirm that evangelism and socio-political involvement 
are both part of our Christian duty. Pause. Do you see what they're saying? Reconciliation between people. Give me a hug. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Bringing together warring tribes, bringing together um, uh, conservatives, liberals. That's a good thing. That's a good thing to do. But it's not reconciliation between man and God. Don't confuse the two. They're very different. Political liberation. If you're in South America, overthrowing a dictator, that's good. And uh, giving your people better chances of living, that's good. But it's not the gospel and it doesn't restore you to relationship with God. It doesn't actually drive the kingdom of God forward. Okay? Don't confuse the two. But, but both evangelism and political, socio-political involvement are both part of our Christian duty. When people receive Christ, they are born again into his kingdom. I must seek not only to exhibit, but also to spread its righteousness in the midst of an unrighteous world. The salvation we claim should be transforming us in the totality of our personal and social responsibilities. Faith without works is dead. John, John Stott was the chairman of the conference. He commented on this. This was when evangelicals recovered their temporarily mislaid social conscience. Now, why do I tell you all that history? Two reasons. One, I love history. And so should you. <laughs> Two, that, that history has a big influence on how people think today. So you, when, you talk, when you come to think about this issue of the relative merits of preaching the gospel, evangelism, and social justice, your background will have a big impact upon how you hear the language. It's worth working out if you... If you tend more towards a tender Tom or tend more towards a blunt Beth because that will impact how you hear the language. Example, a couple of years ago, we were just uh, here on Sunday nights, we were preaching our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, I gave a sermon on um, salt and light. Christians are meant to be salt and light. I thought it was pretty uncontroversial. Um, One point made was that a Christian should care about um, their communities and should work to um, influence for good, uh, the political structures of the day. I thought it was fairly uncontroversial. Visiting that night was a, a senior saint, a generation above me, um, who I know fairly well and have enormous respect and esteem for. He heard this and came up to me afterwards and said, I'm very surprised to hear that, what you said tonight. It seems to me you're on a dangerous trajectory. You're on a trajectory to abandoning the gospel. Be careful. Others are doing that. I see, I see the influence of people such as Tim Keller who have abandoned the gospel and gone for social justice. Hey, gosh, uh, I don't think I'm doing that. You've named someone else. I don't think he's doing that. Um, why do you think that? We had an interesting discussion, but it, he was from a generation that have fought very hard against a liberal Christianity that did want them to give up the gospel completely. And so when he heard anything about being involved in social justice, he just, the alarm bells went off in his head. And so he hit the panic button. It's just worth bearing that in mind, that history. It influences us how we hear uh, these terms used. So we need to be worried that in this sort of debate, Tender Tom and Blunt Beth can shout very loudly but not listen to one another. They're using precisely the same language, meaning very different terms. You just need to be aware of that. Okay, let's get going then. 
Um, uh, I've got on the, on the sheet then three completely unrememberable points. And that's, I've made up a word. Um, an unrememberable word. Three unrememberable points, but hopefully they'll um, help us. It's obvious where we're going. Social justice does not bring the kingdom. Evangelism was Jesus's. Pro- excuse me, um, comma there. Uh, evangelism was Jesus's priority for the kingdom. Social justice must flow from belonging to the kingdom. Let's work through them. We can go quite quickly, I think. First, then, social justice or action does not bring the kingdom. Now, we spoke of this list last time, but it is very important. The modern tendency is to speak about the mission of the church. I'm an Anglican, I have many reasons for being happy about that, many for being unhappy. But um, one of the unhappy things about being an Anglican is the church talks about the mission. How do you, yes, I mustn't do the voice. Um, How do you conceive of mission? Do you view it as more of what you say or more of what you do? So the modern tendency is to use this to blur the language. So mission can be two things. It can be either evangelism, telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ, or mission can be social projects. Both are defined as mission. That's a nonsense, biblically. People say, well, they're a bit like two blades on a pair of scissors. One without the other is not so good. Or two wings of a bird. One without the other really not so good. Now, in one sense, they're very clear pictures, very clear metaphors, but not true biblically. To be wary of that. Now, why do I say that? Well, some would say, some would point to Jesus' activity in the Gospels of doing such things, healing the sick, curing those who are ailed, driving out demons, whatever, and use that as a model. So here's one example. We looked at this uh, last yeah. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, verse 8. Let me just give it to you. Matthew 10, verse 8. Jesus commands his apostles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Okay, off you go now, team. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Four things. Now, the argument from a tender Tom is, yeah, good, that's what we're meant to do. Jesus commanded his apostles to do that. Now, Raising the dead, we're not so good on that these days. Um, driving out demons, a bit strong. But healing the sick, we can do that. Healing people from leprosy, we're really good at that now in the West. So these are the things we need to be concerned with. These are the things that need to occupy us. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do. Now the problem with that is, it completely ignores the timeline of Jesus' life. So that's a command Jesus gives, or sorry, excuse me, gave, before his death and resurrection. And that changes things. It's a sign. So when Jesus came and arrived on earth and was healing the sick and driving out demons and raising the dead, he did those things as a sign of what his death and resurrection would achieve. A perfect place conquering death with no sickness. And when he has died and risen again, he doesn't tell his apostles, raise the dead, heal the sick, cure leprosy. He says to them, go and make disciples. Go and tell them about what I have done and that they can go to a place where there is no sickness, where there is no death. 
See, the, the command to do these things comes at a certain stage in Jesus' ministry. Think of it this way. Imagine you want to go and see a film. You're longing to go and see Alvin and the Chipmunks 3. You just can't think of anything. Some of you know the subtitle. That's really embarrassing. <laughs> Alvin and the Chipmunks 3, Chipwrecked. The, uh, some, you're, longing, you're longing to go and uh, see that film. And uh, you know, the billboard post is brilliant. It's so exciting. The, the other two have been such great films. The, um, and so it's released at the cinema. And so on Friday night, Friday night is the night of release, and you're wildly excited. So on Friday night, you go and you find a billboard for Alvin and the Chipmunks, and you sit down cross-legged in front of the billboard and just stare at it for two hours. And you say, that's great. Now, that would be odd. The billboard is just a sign, just a pointer to what the film is going to be. Jesus' ministry on earth healing the sick, raising the dead. It's a sign. It's a pointer, a trailer for what his death and resurrection will achieve, the conquest of death, whether to take you to a place where there is no sickness. Just the trailer. So don't get confused on that. The kingdom of Jesus does not grow by good works. The kingdom of Jesus doesn't grow with better education systems, with better health care. The kingdom of Jesus grows when people acknowledge him as king. The way into the kingdom of Jesus is not through your behavior. The way into the kingdom of Jesus is through the blood of the king as he dies on the cross. And we don't want to get those two confused. Because when you do blur them, often it is evangelism that gets lost. Tender Tom he does find that uh, when he goes to Afghanistan and build, um, digs a well, people commend him. When he goes to Afghanistan and tells Afghanis about Jesus Christ, they're, con- they're critical. They say, what sort of imperialist are you? And so the temptation is always to veer with the thing that gives you a claim. It's always that's going to be the temptation. You need to be wary of that. Evangelism. And social justice are not the same thing. Social justice does not bring the kingdom. It's a response to being in the kingdom. Or to put it this one last way, uh, someone comes to you with a long list of rules and regulations, of patterns of behavior that will bring great pleasure to Queen Elizabeth. So it's incredibly detailed how many seconds she likes her eggs boiled for. What temperature she likes her milk at in the morning. You've just got to get that right. This very long list, you think, oh, brilliant. I know now how to cater wonderfully for the queen. The only problem is you never meet her. You don't get anywhere near any of her palaces and you never meet her. Well, that list is a fat lot of good to you. It does you no good. Now, once you're in, okay. Once you're working for her, okay. That list is of some use to you. But if you're not in, it's of no good. Social justice does not get you into the kingdom of God. It does not expand the kingdom of God. It's a response when you're in and following Jesus Christ as king. Okay? There's the first. Let's pick up the pace. So social justice does not bring the kingdom. Second thing, evangelism was Jesus' priority for the kingdom. I don't know where you're at in your Bible. Turn back with me, could you, to Luke 4. If you hear last week, there's a long preamble about how dangerous it is just to jump around the Bible rather than preach from a text. And I said that all last week, so let me not say it again. But that is what we're doing when we're teaching topically a little bit. But Luke 4, that passage that was read, 38 
to 44. Here you see Jesus' concerns. He heals many. Extraordinary power to heal people of their sicknesses. As a sign, remember it's as a sign that he's a king with a kingdom where none of those things will exist. But anyway, extraordinary power. Now verse 42 At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. There is an endless queue of people that Jesus could heal. Can you imagine the word gets out, there's a man who can heal all diseases. And so first of all, you know, it is the lame, the blind turn up. And then after a while, you know, everyone who's really badly sick is healed. So those with a, a little twinge in their elbow... You know, just my knee is just not quite the same as it was five years ago. Everyone starts turning up. I mean, there's an endless queue of, of ailments that Jesus could heal, of course. But what does he do? Verse 43. I know I'm not coming back to you. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent The healing is good, it's a sign of who I am, but I was sent to preach to you the good news so that you can enter my kingdom. Because healing, healing is a good thing to do, but it doesn't last. Let me put it starkly and brutally. Caring for someone who's dying of AIDS is a wonderful thing, but explaining explaining to them the gospel is a better thing. If you can do both, great. But teaching the gospel, explaining the gospel is a better thing. Why so? Not because the soul is more important than the body or the spiritual is more important than the physical, but because one lasts for eternity and one is temporary. Do you hear me on that? The physical matters. The body matters. But if someone receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's for eternity. If you tend someone while they're dying, they're going to die. One lasts for eternity. One is only temporary. Uh, in the, the, the book I commended, Tim Chester, he tells the story of um, consoling a friend, a friend who'd worked out in Rwanda for four years in um, community development. And then in 1994, when the Rwanda massacres took place, saw effectively four years of his work disappear in about three days. What, what, is, what was that? So, no, it was a good thing to do. It was a good thing to do all your work in the community, but it doesn't last. Preaching the gospel to people will last into eternity. That's why it's Jesus' priority. It matters very much to get that right. Some of you know the, uh, the Lausanne Congress. They've had uh, uh, another three since... Then, the uh, 2010 was the most recent one, the Lausanne Congress, actually in South Africa, but anyway, not to worry. And um, this same issue came up again, the debate between what's the relative merit of evangelism and social justice. And there was some disagreement among the delegates about how to formulate it. And uh, I wasn't there, but everyone, all, the on, all those who, who were there, witnesses said that kind of the seminal moment of the whole Congress was um, John Piper was preaching on Ephesians 2. And he broke protocol, was a little bit naughty, uh, but uh, in preaching a sermon on Ephesians 2, made this plea. 
Could Lausanne say, could the evangelical church say, we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. I hope we can say that. But if we feel resistant to saying, especially eternal suffering, or if we feel resistant to saying, we care about all suffering in this age, then either we have a defective view of hell or a defective heart. I think that's a great sentence. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering, because it's eternal. It matters to get that right. Jesus' priority was evangelism, because it lasts for eternity. So social justice doesn't bring the kingdom. Evangelism was Jesus' priority for the kingdom. Last thing. Social justice, it, it must flow from belonging to the kingdom. Now, if... Uh, two protagonists were here. If Tender Tom was here, he's probably feeling a little bit on the back foot by now. Blunt Beth might be feeling a little bit cock-a-hoop, but she needs to listen more carefully because we are saying Christians should care about all suffering. But Blunt Beth, she persists in two arguments. They go a bit like this. Uh, Evangelism is the priority. That means that really, practically, that should always trump. We should always do evangelism and never be concerned about social justice because that's what a priority means. Oh, come on. No one lives that way. Is explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone more important than going to Sainsbury's? Yes. 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 Okay, yes, it is. Does that mean you never go to a supermarket and do your shopping? Well, of course you do. Because even though it's a priority, even though it's more important, we manage to do other things in life that are less important. That's how we live. So just because something is a priority doesn't make it an absolute. It just means it's more important. That's how we live life. Or perhaps more specifically, what about what we've heard read again this evening? Micah 6. What is it that the Lord requires of his people who he's rescued and brought into relationship with himself? It's to love justice. To do mercy. To walk humbly. Or uh, let me remind you those verses we, uh, we read some of them last week. James 1.27 in the New Testament. Religion that God our Father, Father finds... Excuse me, let me start that again. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. That's what's acceptable to God. Or chapter 2. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by, if, not, it's not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, my priority is evangelism, so I haven't got time to care for you. I'm talking about the church here at this point. But I haven't got time to care for you. What are you talking about? What sort of Christian are you if you haven't got a concern for those? What are you talking about, says James. So don't make it an absolute just because it's a priority. Second little argument that Blunt Beth uh, marshals, okay. Look, just practically, history shows... That when you have these two issues, evangelism, social action, social action, it always takes over. History shows that that's what happens. Well, that often does happen, to be honest. 
because it's, it's more obvious. You, you can preach the gospel, you can explain the good news of Jesus Christ to people, but it's not obvious what's happening. You dig a well, you run a literacy crusade, it's obvious you've got tangible results. You can, you can fill in a spreadsheet and say, I've done. So there's an always going to be, it's, it's quite appealing to have tick lists, particularly if you have a certain mindset, you love them. But it's always more appealing. You can say, look what I've done, much harder in teaching the gospel. How do you hold these two together? I found this helpful. Don Carson, again, um, was talking about this issue. When they set up the Gospel Coalition in the States and they hammered out this issue, how are we going to talk about the relationship between these two? He said two things, two things really held, held us together and made the issue very clear. Here are the two. The first is this. Distinguish between the church's believers and the church as an institution. So church's believers, Christians, individually, that's different from the church gathered. And do make that distinction. Because the call for all of us individually is to be people of justice, to care about justice. But the call for the church, gathered as an institution, is to teach the word of God, to make disciples, and then to go out and, amongst other things, be people who do justice. So there is a difference between what we should do when we're gathered together and my role, which is to keep Bible teaching and evangelism, disciple making, to keep those things central and not drift away. So that was one helpful thing. Keep distinguish between the church as believers and the church as institution. And the second is more blunt, really. Second thing to, to make sure you don't get the two confused, to maintain the priority, preach hell. A bit blunt, isn't it? The analogy is used, regular talking and teaching about the reality of hell is ballast in a ship. Ballast in a ship stops it tipping over. Now, the New Testament, Jesus in particular, has a lot to say about hell. It's not all he says. You might say it doesn't direct the course of the ship, but it is ballast that holds the ship upright. And if you lose the ballast, you're very vulnerable to tipping over. I think that's helpful. That's John Piper's sentence. is a helpful one, isn't it? We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Not because the body is less important than the soul, but because eternity is more important than the temporary. Care about all suffering. So social justice doesn't bring the kingdom. Evangelism was Jesus' priority for the kingdom. But social justice must flow from belonging to the kingdom. It's normal for Christians to care about these things. Holding them both together, evangelism and a concern for the marginalized, is tough. It's tough holding them together without drifting one way or another. But that's what we're called to do. And so please, you know, be wary of those sort of comments. Well, you're on a dangerous trajectory. Look, you know, on any given week... Here at church, what we tend to lean more upon, one or, or the other, that's going to vary. But we need to try and hold them both in tension. People have done that wonderfully in the past, and the Bible commands us to do that. Let me give you one example as we finish. I read this week really a biography of uh, Lord Shaftesbury, seventh earl, the famous one, famous for his, um, uh, mainly his factory acts. Let me just give you a few facts and figures, and then we'll pray. So uh, uh, Lord Shaftesbury, uh, 19th century, in the the 1830s and 40s, he was responsible for every labor reform bill that went through Parliament, all the different factory acts. 
So he was responsible for limiting the working hours of children, 9 to 13, to a maximum of 8 hours a day. And he prohibited children from under 8 working in factories. He was the chairman of the Ragged Schools Union for 39 years, during which time over 300,000 destitute children were educated for free. This is my favourite. He was chairman of the Lunacy Commissioners, which sounds like he was the forerunner of Lord Such, doesn't it? But um, as you meant, he oversaw the complete renewal of the asylum system from absolutely miserable conditions to where people were treated with much greater respect. He cared. I mean, there's a whole raft of social legislation. In church, well, he drove the Public Worship Act through Parliament in 1874, along with the Prime Minister. That was a concern with the, ang- the, the rise of Anglo-Catholic ritualism. Bells and smells was taking over church. He thought, that, that's not right. That's not right. The preaching of the gospel must be central. And so he legislated to stop it happening for a while. He founded numerous young men Christians associations to promote the teaching of the gospel and therefore godliness. He was president of, president of the British and Foreign Bible Society, sending Bibles around the globe. His own fortune he poured into mission, missionaries. He was an Anglican, but uniquely for the time, he supported both Anglican missionaries and nonconformists and basically gave his fortune to them, to sending people around the world to tell those who didn't know Christ about him. Just before his death, he told his friend Edwin Hodder. Let me give you this quote. My religious views, particularly on sin and hell, are not very popular, but they are the views that have sustained and comforted me all through my life. I think a man's religion, if it is worth anything, should enter into every sphere of his life and rule his conduct in every relationship he has. I have always been, and please God, always shall be, an evangelical man. And I think he got it right in the balance of his life. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know the inclinations of our hearts where we're tempted to uh, veer off in one direction or another. We we want to be those who know you, who recognize Jesus Christ as king, and therefore in response to knowing him as king, are engaged in both these things, in, in telling other people that they need to come to Jesus as a rescuer who will save from hell. But we also want to be those who care deeply about the the injustice around us, particularly for those who have no voice for the marginalized of society. We want to maintain the priority of the things that will last for eternity without neglecting the things of this life. It's a hard balance, Father. We'll make mistakes. But teach us. Would your gospel shape us? So we're people who care about all suffering, particularly eternal suffering, and therefore act to the praise of your name. Amen.